I'm just going to pray for us again uh, while we begin here. Um, one of my favorite uh, heroes of the faith, George Mueller, uh, he used to get up and when he was preaching, if he felt like he was just doing it under his own power, he'd ask the congregation to pray for him. And there's one time he actually just kind of gave up. He's like, I don't feel like I, I feel like I'm preaching on my own power, and he just went and sat down. So maybe we'll, that'll happen today. But um, I'm going to pray. Can you pray for me as, as we do this? Uh, Father, we love you. We thank you for your church. We thank you for uh, Jesus who paid the ultimate price uh, to make us your people make us your church. Uh, Spirit, we ask for your help this morning. Um, Lord, open our hearts and be with me as I uh, open your word, Lord. And do what only you can do this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm get rid of my gum. Um, we are continuing our series looking at Jesus' parables. Um, our passage this morning is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, if you want to turn there. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even in his, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish, all who, begin, uh, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if its salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Jesus is an interesting person, isn't he? Um, I, I doubt you'll meet anyone in the world who will disagree with that. And, and I think the reason Jesus is interesting is he can be incredibly popular, but he can also be incredibly divisive in a way. Um, and even in our culture, when I'm meeting new people, or, or if I'm meeting old friends and they find out that I'm a pastor now, uh, it, it's usually the former. Usually people are kind of cool with Jesus. They, they, they don't have any big issues with Him. Um, and in a lot of ways, they're actually quite fond of Him. Um, they, because Jesus is, is a great teacher. He's a revolutionary. 
Um, he, um, he, he's all about caring for the poor and the marginalized. He's all about healing the, the, the blind and the lame and the sick. Um, Jesus is all about eating with, with sinners and tax collectors. Um, like, who could be against this Jesus? Um, and, and it's actually this kind of positive public opinion that, that sets the context of our passage today. Because in verse 25 it says, Now great crowds accompanied him. And now, there, there are obviously times in the Bible where the public perception of Jesus is incredibly negative. It gets negative enough for the crowds to want to kill him. Um, but this isn't the case in this scene. Um, in this specific scene, Jesus is actually being looked upon very uh, uh, favorably by the crowds. Um, it says, great crowds accompanied him. This word literally means to go with him. Um, so in, at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry is like full steam ahead. Um, he's, he's traveling through the land. He's going from town to town. He's preaching. Uh, he's performing miracles. He's healing people. He's partying with people. Um, he's at various feasts with sinners and tax collectors. And basically what we have here at this point is these fellow travelers who are, who are caught up in the excitement of this new movement uh, but they're not personally committed or really affected in any way. Uh, this, this great crowd is, is kind of tagging along uh, because they are uh, interested in what Jesus is doing, but, they, but they're doing so in a real, with a real kind of superficial enthusiasm. And, and Jesus is, is quite disturbed by this, so he turns around and he, he addresses the crowd. Uh, Jesus knows that their enthusiasm is, is, is superficial, um, he knows that it's really easy for them to kind of tag along and follow him uh, because things are going really well. Um, it's easy to follow someone when uh, there's parties to go to and there's, there's people being healed. Uh, but in this, this traveling section in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem and his destination there is death. Um, keep reading and, and when you see Jesus uh, make this kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it says that the multitudes of disciples there began to rejoice and praise God for all the mighty works that they had seen. They cried out in that moment, Hosanna, blessed is the King who comes. We keep reading and those cries of Hosanna quickly turn into cries of crucify Him. Um, and Jesus knows this will happen. He, he knows that the enthusiasm uh, of the great crowd will fall away. Uh, so he turns and he addresses them. And he gives them these two really short parables. And um, these are two of the shortest uh, of Jesus' parables. Each are just a couple sentences. Uh, certainly two of the lesser known parables. They might even be uh, pretty new to you this morning. Um, they're, they're really simple. So each of them make the same one point. Um, but the section always can, also contains some of the, what we call the hard sayings of Jesus. You read it and you're like, this is uh, hard things to hear Jesus say. And these two parables, one of them is from the business world or the kind of financial sector. One is from warfare. But in both cases, you have someone who's embarking on a costly enterprise. And so the first parable in verse 28 where Jesus actually calls us to imagine ourselves wanting to, to build a tower. Uh, the, the word is probably a, a, like a bit of a, a watchtower. Um, it, we're not led to believe that this is like a foolish enterprise. It's an important building. Uh, it's a significant enough building to require a foundation to be laid. Um, and, and Jesus says, which of you desiring to build this kind of tower would not first sit down 
and, and count the cost to, to, to figure out whether you have enough supplies to actually complete the construction of this, this building. Uh, so the supplies for this building are, are expensive, they're costly, and Jesus says if you don't assess first whether you're able to complete the project, you'll, you'll probably get halfway through or you could get halfway through and, and you're not able to finish it. And he says think of the shame that you'll, uh, you'll receive as people mock you and remember, shame's a, a big deal in their culture. And Jesus is saying to, to the great crowd, don't be like that foolish builder who's not able to, to finish what they're completing, uh, to what they're uh, building. He says, first sit down and count the cost. He says, it's better for you not to begin the project than to start it and not be able to finish it. Um, and then in the second parable, uh, we see the stakes are even higher. Uh, so in the first story, the cost of the supplies to, uh, for the building uh, of this tower are expensive. But, but in the second story, you have the lives of 10,000 men. Um, it's even more uh, valuable, even more costly. And, and, and really, in that story, the king who fails to deliberate whether he has what it takes to win the battle, he'll suffer far more than just ridicule from his neighbors. He's, he's risking the lives of 10,000 people. And in each, each of these parables, the, the path to wisdom is meant to be obvious. So anytime Jesus speaks like this, he begins a question, uh, which one of you would not, or which king would not? We're, we're meant to understand that the, the answer to the following question is, is obvious. Um, so if we're meant to say, of course the builder needs to first count the cost of his project. Of course he needs to take stock, make sure he can pay the price uh, required to build the tower. Uh, of course, the, this king needs to be absolutely clear that he has what it takes to win the battle. It's easy to start just building a tower. It's easy to just rush into war. And Jesus is, in, is encouraging this enthusiastic crowd not to be like that foolish builder or the, that hasty king who rushes to action without first stopping to consider the, the, the cost of the endeavor. And like that army of, of 20,000 troops coming up against 10, the call to, the call to discipleship is, is nothing to be trifled with or, or engaged with lightly. Jesus makes it actually perfectly clear that, that being his disciple, of being a follower of him, will cost a person everything. The cost won't look the same for each disciple, but Jesus requires that each person who follows him renounce 100% of what they have, whether it be very little or very much. Michael Knowles puts it this way. He says, salvation is free, but it will cost us our lives. Think about that. It's salvation, it's, it's a gift, it's grace, it's free for you, but at the same time, it will cost you everything. And each of these parables have, has the same three words in it. If you have a Bible and you have a, something to write with, circle those three words. First, sit down, or, or sit down first. Jesus is saying, before you stand up, before you just come and, and follow me and act, I want you to first sit down and think. Take a seat, consider what it's going to cost you to be one of my disciples. It's opposite from a lot of churches in, in our society who want to whip up a crowd, a lot of hype. Jesus is not that way. He says, pump the brakes for a minute. Consider what this is going to cost you. And this is really what I want you to do this morning um, as we sit here. And we talk a lot about in our church of not only being the church gathered, but also being the church that is scattered. 
um, where, the, where we are the church sent out into our communities to be on mission for Jesus. But before we stand up and, and go do that, let's do what Jesus suggests here and, and have a seat and consider what it's going to cost us to carry out that mission. Let's consider the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, John Stott, he said, if we did this, if we counted the cost of following Jesus, we would save ourselves much sorrow and the cause of Jesus Christ much dishonor. He says, the Christian landscape is littered with builders' debris and the Christian battlefield with corpses. The grim, remain, the grim remains of those who ignored the advice of Jesus and failed to first count the cost. I'm going to ask you this question. What, is, what does it mean in our culture to be a Christian? What, what do your friends and your family think of you being a follower of Jesus? And I think many in, in our kind of Western culture actually view being a Christian as the easy way, as actually the, the comfortable way. Um, again, uh, I mentioned George Mueller. Uh, he wrote in, in his autobiography, his father was this way. He, his father, he says, was a worldly man. Um, he he, want, he uh, raised his, his children in worldly ways. He wasn't a believer, but he wanted his son, George, to be a clergyman. He wanted him to go into full-time ministry, but George, he wrote, not that I would serve God, but that I would have a comfortable life. And that still happens in our culture. You still have, have people who are drawn into full-time ministry because it's comfortable. Some denominations that you get a pretty nice manse, you get a pretty good salary, you get a bit of a following. But actually in this passage, Jesus tells us that, that uh, the real Christian life is actually quite the opposite. Um, it, it's not a cushy life. Uh, Jesus requires his followers to, to give up everything in their lives for his sake. It's incredibly costly to be a true disciple of Jesus. And, and he, he tells us what the, the cost is like uh, in the form of three demands uh, that we're going to look at in, in the passage. Um, three times in this passage, he lays down a condition, and he, and he adds to that. He says, unless you, you do this, you can't be my disciple, um, which is kind of shocking to hear, isn't it? And um, We often think of Jesus as as inviting, as loving, which he, he absolutely is those things, but, but he also speaks about how few people will actually be his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount, remember, he says the gate to his kingdom is narrow. The, the, the way is, is hard, and few will actually do that. And so let's look at these three demands Jesus lays out for his followers. Firstly, Jesus calls his disciples to to, to put him above our earthly relationships. Look at verse 26. It says, If anyone comes to me or follows me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Talk about a hard saying of Jesus. Um, I, I reckon the average kind of punter on the street, if you went out and said, Hey, who said this? And you give him that quote, not very many people would be like, Jesus. Um, but it is, it's, it's, and it's shocking language. Um, but in this scenario, we're not, we're not meant to take Jesus literally. Um, Jesus isn't saying we're to literally hate our, our families and our own lives. 
Uh, Craig Bloomberg puts it this way. He says, often the, uh, the Greek, as it is written in here by Luke, um, especially when it's influenced by Old Testament and, and Hebrew backgrounds, as, as it is with Jesus, uh, the word isn't meant to refer to emotion, but rather to commitment. So, so love and hate are actually used to describe which person you're most loyal to. Um, it can also mean to, to choose or to not to choose. So in, in Malachi, the Lord says, uh, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So it, it's not that God had hate in his heart towards Esau. It's that he chose Jacob. That, that, that he, he chose to make a covenant with Jacob, to be loyal to Jacob. It's like his love for Jacob is so, uh, is so much that it's like he hates Esau in comparison. It's this comparative way. And really, that's the way that Jesus is using love and hate here. And he says the same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, where Matthew kind of gives us that interpretation. That He says, if anyone loves his, his family more than me, he can't be my disciple. It's that comparative love. So Jesus doesn't mean that he wants you to hate your family. Um, remember, uh, relationships, marriage, sex, procreating, family, children they're they're goods they're they're god's creation and they're 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 actually part of the creation mandate in genesis 1 go and and fill the earth procreate so jesus he can't mean for us to to reject what god has created he to reject god's uh what he's commanded us to do and i'd also just suggest that jesus takes the ten commandments very seriously so the um the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother and we actually see Jesus do this through his, his short life on earth. This is one of his very last requests while he's dying on the cross is to make sure that his mother is, is taken care of. He, he loves his mother. He's, he honors her. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us we're to love our enemies. So it's, it's rather inconceivable that he tells us to love your enemy, enemy, en, enemies <laughs> and, but hate your family and uh, doesn't make any sense does that make sense if i made my point jesus doesn't want you to hate your families um, but he does require that we we love him more love your children love your families but he says you must love me even more our loyalty to him must come first let me ask you this question is your love for jesus more than your love for your fill in the blank do you love Jesus more than you love your wife's husband, more than you love your children's parents, your fiancé, your friends? Let me ask it in another way. Is your relationship with your fill-in-the-blank hindering your relationship with Jesus? Is your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend or, or your, your mother or father hindering your relationship with Jesus? If it is, then you might have a value, a loyalty issue there that you need to address in your heart. Or, or for the, the would-be disciple, for someone assessing whether they want to become a Christian, are you willing to follow Jesus even if it means being rejected by your family? Which is a real thing. It's, it's a real thing in, in places like North Africa and India and the Middle East places where the decision to become a Christian almost certainly means being rejected by your family, your communities. It happens in Turkey. It, this is a real thing in our cultural context. There's people in our church 
who have made that decision to follow Jesus and their families are incredibly upset with them for that decision. There's people in our church that have decided to follow Jesus and, and to be obedient and, and be baptized and their families refuse to come. But they've, but they've done it anyways because Jesus means more to them than their earthly relationships. It's a costly discipleship. And church, we must love and value Jesus above our earthly relationships, no matter how dear they are to us. If they are more dear to you than Jesus, then they are an idol. It's not normal in our culture to have kind of handmade idols, necessarily statues of kind of gods in our homes, but don't think for a minute that we don't have them. If anything, our idols actually hold our heart more tightly, the more kind of subtly. And for many of us, our idols are the people we sleep next to when we go to bed at night. Many of us, our idols are the children living under our homes. Maybe it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Anything you love and value more than Jesus is called an idol. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple if that's the case. I require your complete devotion and loyalty. But Jesus, why do you want me to love my family less? Um, He's not saying he wants you to love them less. He wants you to love them more. But he's saying you have to make sure that you love me even above them. And I'd actually uh, say that the, the way to actually love your family more is by loving Jesus more than them. And husbands, if you want to be a better husband to your wife, love Jesus more. Like, like abide with Him. Find ways to, to practice the presence of Jesus. That will make you a better husband. You want to be a better parent? Find ways to deepen your relationship with Christ. And recently, uh, we were driving, and Ida, my daughter, said, uh, she could say funny things you don't expect, but she said, Daddy, I know you love me, but I think you love Jesus even more. And I turned to her and I said, you're right. And, and I didn't say that to hurt her or to confuse her. I've, I have vowed that she'll never doubt how much I love her, but I want it to be a normal thing in our family for us to love and value Jesus more than each other. I want it to be normal for Jenny and I to look at each other and say, I love you, but I love Jesus more. Teach your kids to love and treasure Jesus more than they love and treasure you, more than love and treasure anyone, and you'll have fulfilled your duty to them as a parent. Thanks, Mom, for doing that. Um, church, in order to, to, rev- to, to be a real follower of Jesus, we must love Him and treasure Him above our earthly relationships. Secondly, we are to put Christ above our ambitions. Look at verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So by now we can uh, safely say that Jesus is a terrible salesperson. <laughs> um, his, his like PR manager is pulling their hair out by now. Like, Jesus, do you want to gain a, a bigger following here or not? Why are you telling people that you, they have to hate their families in order to be a follower of you? They have to value you above anyone else. And now you're saying that they have to carry a cross 
which is shocking language. And, and really the weight of that phrase, to bear your own cross, it doesn't hit us like it does uh, that, that first century uh, follower of, of Jesus. Because the, really the, the cross in our culture is a, is a nice symbol. It's a symbol for love. It's a symbol for devotion. Um, it's a symbol for just kind of religion. Um, it, it's, it's nice to have like a, a cross symbol on jewelry. It's nice to have a cross tattoo. But to have a, a, a cross necklace would have been absolutely absurd uh, for, the, for someone living under the, the first century Roman rule because the cross was a, a repulsive means of execution. It was a means of, uh, uh, of uh, terrorizing uh, a people, uh, of putting down dissent. It'd be like us having a, a little like noose necklace or like a, an electric chair tattoo. It'd be absurd. And, and this is what Jesus has told his disciples that they'd have to do in order to be one of his disciples. Mike McKinley wrote, that The call to carry one's cross as a call to a one-way trip to death. He's, he's saying the same thing as, as Bonhoeffer in, in that opening line of, the, of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Like, what a sales pitch. <laughs> and this is the, the essence of Jesus' message about discipleship. This is the, this, this shocking metaphor of crucifixion. Now, what does he mean, what does he doesn't mean here when he says his followers must bear their own cross and come after him? And does he mean every one of his followers will, will, will die a martyr's death? No, obviously not. He's, he's not being literal here again. Uh, he's, he wasn't being literal when he said you have to hate your family. And he's not being literal here when he says you have to, you, you'll have to carry a, an actual cross to an actual execution. Um, Mark 8.34 gives us a kind of a clearer picture of what Jesus means with this metaphor. Uh, in Mark 8, Jesus is foretelling his death and his resurrection. Uh, in verse 31, he says, uh, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and, the, and, and be killed and after three days rise again. So in that section, Jesus is being very literal. He, he, he would actually be killed on a cross. He would actually rise from the dead three days later. Uh, in verse 32, he says that he, he told them this plainly. He's being as clear as he possibly can at that point. And, and, and uh, you have this section where Peter can't believe what he was saying, and he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. <laughs> Imagine that. And Jesus is like, excuse me, uh, you're Satan. I'm going to rebuke you. Um, and then he, he, in verse 34, says, Jesus calls the crowds to him again, and he says the same thing. And he says, if anyone, would, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And it's this, this self-denial, this death to self, crucifying your, your selfish ambitions is, is what Jesus means by bearing our cross. A, a disciple must deny himself must die to his self-will, must take up their cross, which Jesus, in Jesus' example means to embrace the Father's will. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And to do this no matter the cost, just like Jesus. And will some of Jesus' followers die a gruesome death like he did? Yes, happens all over the world still. Will all of us? Certainly not. Should we be ready to? 
Absolutely, he says. And, and, and listen, I don't want you to hear this in the wrong way, and there's nothing wrong with being an ambitious person, and there's nothing, Jesus wants uh, you to, um, uh, there, there's going to be successful people in the kingdom, um, even in the scriptures, there's successful business people in the kingdom, but Jesus uh, he says, there's nothing wrong with you being an ambitious person, but I want you to use that ambition to, to further my kingdom, not yours. It's okay to do well. It's okay to reach the top. Uh, but, but real followers of Jesus do so for the sole purpose of using that influence to expand God's kingdom rather than their own. We're called to give up our small, selfish ambitions and instead spend our lives in service to Jesus. We're called to put Christ before our relationships. We're called to put Christ before our, our ambitions. And thirdly, we're, we're called to put uh, Christ before our possessions. Look at verse 33. It says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, another shocking statement, huge implications. Um, that word renounce is, is, is usually either translated as renounce or to give up. And, and, and I think for our understanding, renounce is probably the better word because, again, he's not being literal here. Um, he, he's no more saying that you have to literally get rid of all that you own um, in order to be his, his, his follower more than he's saying you have to literally hate your family, you have to literally go get yourself crucified. Um, so what is Jesus saying here? Um, are some Christians called to voluntary poverty? Certainly. Um, keep reading. When you get to chapter 18 of Luke, you have the Jesus interaction with the rich young ruler where Jesus tells him, you need to sell all that you have and give those proceeds to the poor. He tells him that to, this, this stuff that has a grip on your heart, get rid of it. Um, it, it's, it's keeping you from, from being a follower of me. He, he, he knows that this is a, a firm grip on him. So Jesus says, you need to get rid of it all. Uh, some are called to voluntary poverty. You think of uh, St. Francis of Assisi, you think of a Mother Teresa. But, um, but, but that's not the call of all of Jesus' disciples. Read the New Testament. Really, that young man was the, was the only person Jesus said, give it all up in that way, literally. So what does it mean to renounce all that we have? Stott says that Jesus is calling us to develop an inner detachment to material things. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says, Don't lay up treasures for yourself here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. He says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And the reason he says that is, is because where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And that is in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is after, your heart, your affections, your deep righteousness in that way. I love how Peterson puts it in the message. He says, he says, simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether it plans or people or possessions, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. That, that kiss goodbye is another way to, uh, to translate that word renounce, to, to say farewell, to say goodbye. If you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple. These are all hard. It's, if we're honest, Northern Ireland is incredibly materialistic. 
We, we, we judge ourselves, we judge each other, we measure up by possessions, don't we? Stuff has a firm grip on our hearts, our houses, our cars, our clothes, our coffee, all quality stuff, all, all like Instagram-worthy. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you need to renounce it all. Where's, where's your treasure? What is your treasure? What really gets you excited? Gaining more stuff for the beautiful life or gaining more of Christ for the beautiful life? What are we going to be known for, church? Stuff? aesthetics, or are we going to be known for our simplicity, our generosity, our contentment? Again, is it, is it wrong to have nice things? Not necessarily. The answer is no, but I, w- I want to say it in that way because I, I'd want to err on the side. I think Jesus would say it's a dangerous game to play. Be careful sit down and, and consider the cost and read the Bible all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, all through human history. It's the things of this world. It's, the, it's relationships. It's selfish ambition. It's, it's earthly possessions, shiny stuff that slowly and subtly wrap its fingers around our hearts and draw us away from God. Are we willing to put Christ above our relationships, above our ambitions, above our possessions? Jesus says, cannot be my disciple if you are not willing to do so. Church salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And just as we're finishing here, let me answer this last question. If Jesus is making these high demands, why should we accept them? He's calling us to consider this cost, this this life of renouncing all, of loving and treasuring Jesus above all people, above all possessions, following Him, bearing a cross, possibly to the point of, of physical death. Why on earth would you accept these demands? And the Bible gives us a lot of reasons, and we don't have time to, to look at them all. But really quickly, I want to show you two reasons. And one is, is the kind of negative side, and one is the positive side. Firstly, uh, look at the negative. Really, the passages directly before this passage and, and directly after, and they show us that, that as costly as it is to be a follower of Jesus, the cost of not following Him is far, far greater um, look at the passage before, and um, th- there's a parable just before this one uh, called the Great Banquet, and in that parable, Jesus shows us that, that, that His disciples are actually guests of a great banquet, uh, of a party, of a feast, and, and in, in that parable, the, the host of that banquet sends out invitations, and, and when it t- comes time to begin that feast, all the invitees begin to make excuses 
for why they cannot come. And what's fascinating is, is when you read that, the excuses that they give, they, they mirror very closely what Jesus, the examples that Jesus gives in the cost of discipleship section. A lot of uh, relationships and ambitions and people in there. Sorry, I've just bought a field. I need to go see it. Someone says, I bought, I got, I bought some oxen. I got some new stuff. I need to go examine them. They're more important than this feast. Sorry, I, I've just got married. I won't be able to make it. And Jesus says, these guests who make excuses, these guests who, who aren't willing to, to put him first, he says, none of them will taste my banquet. They, they, they will be left out of the kingdom. They, they, the future messianic banquet that that is pointing towards, they won't be there. They won't taste it. And, and then the section just after in verse 34, that, that section on salt, salt is good, but if it, the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it says it, it, is, it is of no use anymore. And, and it actually is, it, it's, it's worse than, than worthless. It's not even useful for the soil or for, to put into a manure pile. It's thrown away. So again, Jesus' followers we're meant to be salt in this world, um, and he's saying that salt that isn't salty is worse than useless. It's thrown away. And, and these two warnings were meant to take seriously, not tasting the banquet, being thrown away. The, the cost of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to, we see is nothing compared to the cost of not following him. The cost, of Jesus, the cost of following Jesus is a momentary hardship. The cost of not following him is an eternal one. But there's also a positive reason for accepting his demands. Turn over to Hebrews 11 uh, if you have your Bibles there. We're going to um, start a series in going through the book of Hebrews in September. Really looking forward to it. A lot of, all through Hebrews is a lot of this stuff, martyrdom, um, that kind of cost of, of discipleship. Hebrews 11, verse 24, says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So, stop there. Moses grew up as royalty. You all know that. He was, he was uh, put in the basket, then he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. And so, essentially, Moses was, was counted as part of this, this most powerful, uh, wealthiest family in the world. And, and it says that Moses, by faith, renounced all of that and chose instead to be counted as part of God's family with God's people, which meant being mistreated with them rather than enjoying essentially all the world had to offer. And why did he do this? Look at verse 26. Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And we'll get into this deeper when we start that series, but... Um, the writer is showing us that these Old Testament characters, 
Moses, Abraham, that their faith was kind of foreshadowing what was to come. And even Moses, what he was doing was he was looking forward to this heavenly reward rather than having eyes on this earthly one. In faith, he actually considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth, a far greater reward than any treasure Egypt could offer him. So he was willing to to enter into suffering with God's people. He was willing to, to lose his kind of royal earthly relationships. He was willing to give up his ambitions. He's willing to renounce all his earthly possessions if it means he gains something far better. This is exactly what what, what Paul says and does in in Philippians as well. Read his letter to the church in Philippi this week. Please do. Read Philippians um, because Paul is writing that letter to the church from prison. He's in shackles. Paul has lost everything, uh, and he's lost everything simply because he valued Jesus above anything this earth could offer. All all throughout that letter, you you can hear that that Paul actually did what Jesus told him to do. You could tell that he sat himself down and he considered the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. He understood what this meant. I'm just going to highlight a few things through that. Chapter 1, verse 12, he says, what's happened to me as he sits in prison has really served to advance the gospel. He says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Chapter 1, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you, church, that you not only believe, but that you also suffer for him. Verse, uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 he says, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering among the, the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad, I'm re- I rejoice with you all. Chapter 3, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? He says, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for, the, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I've counted it as rubbish. I've renounced it all. Why? He says, in order that I might gain Christ. Verse 3, chapter 18, he says, he, he, he speaks of, he describes those who are not disciples of Jesus, those who he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, their end is destruction. He says what Jesus says. Their end is destruction They won't taste the banquet. They will be thrown out like the useless salt. And he describes these people. He says their their God is their belly. They they, they glory in their shame. He says they they have minds set on earthly things. And this is exactly what Jesus warns us in Luke uh, 14. Enemies of the cross of Christ are those who fail to value Christ above all else. They are, they are lured in by earthly things, by things they, they desire, selfish ambition, possessions. They are lured in by, by earthly treasures rather than setting their eyes on heavenly ones. And Paul says, disciples of Jesus, those who, those who love and treasure him above all things, 
like Moses did, like Paul did. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. Our, our end is not destruction. It's, it's a heavenly one. And he says, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. He will transform your weak, sick, earthly body to be like His glorious heavenly body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. The, the discipleship is, is costly, but Paul shows us that the reward is great. It's worth it. I want to just end here by pointing you to Jesus one last time. Um, listen to what Paul says in, in Philippians 2, verse 4 to 8. He kind of gives you the why, and he kind of gives you the how as well. He tells the church in that section not to look to their own interests, but to look to the interest of others, this, this death of selfish ambition, death to self, bearing your cross. And he says in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Church, if Jesus bore the cross for you when he did not deserve it, how can we not? Think of what it cost him. He, he, this is the Son of Man. This is the, the one who spoke creation into existence. He enjoyed the union of the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. And he left that and came to earth. He humbled himself, became a servant, and obediently endured death and separation from his Father. He obediently cried out, Father, not my will, but yours be done. There was no greater cost than the one that Jesus paid in order to bring you from death to life. That's our Lord. Let's follow him. Let's stand and pray. Uh, Jesus, we confess that um, this can often not be what's on our minds. We confess that um, we get comfortable. And we confess that um, we often don't bear our cross. We often do um, put our ambitions and our relationships first. We thank you for grace, Jesus. We thank you that through what you've accomplished on the cross, that even though we fail over and over again, we can come to you, that what you've done has, has covered our sins. Um, Lord, change our hearts. Change our affections. Help us to do that 
for one another and to one another. Help us to push each other to you, Jesus, to renounce all that we have, to give up things that are keeping us from you. Help us to understand not only the cost of following you, but the cost of not following you and the reward that is great for those who are faithful to you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the price that you paid, far costlier than any price we can. Help us to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.